we saw how people in power refused to be the custodians of the resources as they were expected and instead used their position to enrich themselves with the resources. Nobel Peace Prize winner Wangari Maathai. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. She was the first African woman to win the Nobel Prize. Kenyan-born Wangari Maathai was educated in the U.S., but then returned to Kenya, where she became a social, environmental, and political activist. In 1977, when she was 37 years old, Wangari Maathai established what she called the Green Belt Movement. What started as a rather modest effort to just plant some trees and improve the environment and natural resources soon became a major environmental and women's rights movement, and it frequently got Wangari Maathai in trouble, even jailed. I met her 14 years ago when she wrote a book about her life and her experience. So here now, from 2006, Wangari Maathai. And I have to tell you what a great honor and a privilege it is for me to be speaking with you today. I mean, you, the winner of the 2004 Nobel Peace Prize, what a great distinction this is for you. It is indeed, and I'm... Um really very encouraged and have been celebrating ever since. And I know that it is not only for me, but for all women uh, of the world, every girl child everywhere should feel deeply encouraged by this price. I'm sure that one of the questions you are asked very frequently, and one of the reasons you wrote the book is to explain where people, people must say, well, where did the Green Belt movement come from? How did it start? What was your inspiration? Precisely because many people want to know what inspired me. And so I share, for example, the fact that it was partly because I grew up in the countryside. It was also partly because of the the fact that when I went to college, I studied biology, so I understood how biological systems operate. And finally, when I went back home, I was um, inspired by, by the needs of my people, especially the uh, the women who live in the countryside and who needed firewood, who needed clean drinking water, who needed to grow their food in fertile soils. And I eventually linked the problems that they were facing as symptoms of a deeper problem, which I eventually identified as environmental degradation and bad governance. There was one line in your book that I thought was was particularly superb when you said that all it was was just a bunch of women planting seedlings. <laughs> the government didn't much care. Fine, go plant your little trees, have your little hobby. But when you started getting into substantive issues and the causes and, as you said, the, the whole gamut of things, then they began to notice what you were up to. Yes, and that's when they decided that they should apply uh, some bad laws that we were in that we are in place, such as a law that said you cannot meet when you are more than nine. And now many members of our families in Africa are more than nine. So how can that be? And and that was indeed the linkage. That's when we started making the linkage between uh, good governance and responsible and sustainable management of resources. We saw how people in power refused to be the custodians of the resources as they were expected and instead used their position 
to enrich themselves with the resources. And that's when I realized that if you do not have good governance, if you do not have a system of governance that respects the rule of law, that believes in equity, then it is very difficult to manage the resources of any country. And that's also the reason why sometimes you may be a very rich country with respect to resources, but if they are not, if they are not properly managed and if they are not properly distributed, you will have a few people who are very rich and the majority who are very poor. It is very dangerous for you to point that out to certain governments, though, isn't it? Well, definitely. Nobody who is practicing bad governance, nobody who is corrupt, nobody who exploits his people, nobody who facilitates the exploitation of the resources of a country at the expense of the citizens wants to be exposed like that. And that, of course, is why I found myself in jail several times. You described the first time you went to jail. You have three small children at home. You're trying to figure out, first of all, this whirlwind, how you got there. It happened in a matter of just a few hours. And now you're realizing you're in jail for the first time. They've cut off your braids. You're huddled in with other people. Who knows what they're in there for? What was going through your mind? Uh, That was a very terrifying period because uh, I I had been sent there and had not been given an option for a fine. So definitely the judge wanted to teach me a lesson for six months. And I just didn't know how I would get out of that jail. Uh, This is for contempt of court, right? This was uh, for contempt of court. But I had actually told the judge what I genuinely believed was the truth. Uh, And I know that that case has continued to attract a lot of uh, attention from lawyers because they always want to know, now let's see what was going on in this case. Because what I was pointing out is that the judge can, can, of course, make judgment. That's why he's there. But he must be guided by the facts. And so I told the judge, Mr. Judge, you are either corrupt or incompetent. For you to come to the conclusion, the way you have come to this conclusion. Now, of course, he was in power and he was sitting in the seat of judgment and he decided I deserved to go to jail. Once you had been in jail, does that does that make it so that it's not so bad the second time, not so bad the third time? Do you get, I don't want to say you get used to it, but <laughs> does, does it become less a less of a panicky kind of situation? It's just something that you might have to deal with from time to time? Well, obviously, uh, I must say that throughout these periods, I never wanted to go to jail. Believe me, no matter how short uh, that 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 period in jail is, being in jail, especially in our jails, is an extremely dehumanizing experience because you lose your privacy, you lose your your, um, presence, and you literally become extremely helpless. I, I must say that when I was in jail, one of the things that I learned was to call every officer madam. Now, it didn't matter how trivial those people were, whether they were very minor officers, I still was required to call them madam. And I was a full-fledged university professor. So I was very, very humbled and indeed remained to, I, I still remember that. But you never get used to it. However... Sometimes when people treat you unfairly, they actually strengthen your resolve. Because now you know 
they are doing what they are doing, not because you have made any mistake, not because you have broken any law, because I tried very hard not to break the law deliberately. But you know they are getting at you. They are vindictive. They want to punish you. They want to crush you. They want to finish you. They want to silence you. And so sometimes that's when you get the resolve and you say, absolutely, I will not give up. God help me. There's another chapter in your book that any reader from New York who knows Central Park, any reader from Washington who knows Lafayette Park, anybody who has a beautiful park in the center of the town will sympathize with the story that you tell in the late 1980s about blocking the construction of a huge, huge skyscraper, an ugly building that would have devastated a park in Nairobi. And it would have been another source of the big debts that uh, African governments put on the shoulders of their people, the kind of debts that people keep hearing us say that the G8 countries should cancel because this was a monster. And yet it was being put in a place which is the only open area for the people of Nairobi, the only green area. And, you know, every city needs an open space where people can go, walk, rest, sleep, a place where nobody asks you to pay to be able to go in. And it was inconceivable that the government would want to take up that uh, plot, that park, and put this monster of a building. I knew for sure that this was going to be another white elephant. Because you know these projects, mega projects, that were put in these developing countries, sometimes they were never completed. Sometimes even when they were completed, they could not be utilized because there was no capacity to utilize them. And many of these projects were used as codewits for these leaders and these people in power to siphon the money that they were borrowing to construct these mega projects and that money came from one door, through one door, and went out through another door, back to northern countries in banks. But the debt would nevertheless be accredited to the country. And these are some of the debts that we are still paying. So we were not only going to lose the open space, we were also going to be left with a big debt. And I remember I used to say, well, Nairobi is constantly saying it doesn't have enough water. And then the, we are not able to send water to the fourth floor. Now, how are you going to send water to the 62nd floor? <laughs> what a joke. We hadn't thought of that. <laughs> what do you do now? I mean, how do you top a Nobel Peace Prize? What, what is next for you? Well, I think what is important for us to remember is that we do not do what we have to do with our lives so that we get a price. We are not working for recognition. But when it comes, it's wonderful. It's a great compliment. It gives us energy, and it also encourages other people. What is important for us to understand is that we serve because we are here, and we have been given certain attributes, certain gifts by the Creator. So you serve, you give service. I, I want to suggest to you that 
the, the happiest people on this earth are those people who provide service. Not so much that they may be uh, praised uh, or glorified, but so that they may make it better for others because they, through the grace of others, find themselves in a very privileged position. I consider this prize a compliment not only to me, as I said earlier, but to all the women of the world, to all the people of the world, to many African women especially, to the people of Africa. And so I hope that I can continue to give more service and I can continue to work for the environment and for governance issues so that you, some of you still children, may one day say, I became what I became because I was inspired by what this woman who was a tree planter, a woman in Africa, was trying to do. I hope I will be an inspiration because even I am what I am because I was inspired by those who went before me. Wangari Matai died in 2011 at age 71 after fighting ovarian cancer. She is buried at the Wangari Matai Institute for Peace and Environmental Studies in Nairobi, Kenya. Well, if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to Now I've Heard Everything in your favorite podcast app. We're on iHeart, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and many other major platforms. New episodes are posted every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the man who literally stood head and shoulders above his peers, my 1991 interview with NBA Hall of Famer Wilt Chamberlain. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.